0: You're listening to another podcast from IdRatherBeWriting.com. I'm Tom Johnson and today I am speaking with Kirk St. Amant. Kirk is a professor and the Eunice C. Williamson Endowed Chair in Technical Communication at Louisiana Tech University. He's also an Adjunct Professor of International Health and Medical Communication with the University of Limerick in Ireland. And Kirk's uh, research interests focus on international communication and information design for global audiences. Uh, He has a particular focus on the globalization of online education and health and medical communication for international audiences. So thanks, Kirk, for coming on to the podcast. Hey, Tom, thanks for this opportunity to chat. I appreciate it. All right, now, the reason that uh, I've invited Kirk to to speak in this podcast is because this topic is one that is really becoming uh, hugely important to both practitioners and academics. We're gonna be talking about this ac- academic practitioner divide. Um, it's a discussion that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, and Kirk has written an, an article that dives deeply into this topic and surfaces a lot of interesting research. Uh, but before we get to that, um, let's kind of introduce introduce Kirk a little bit more. Uh, let's hear, you know, I want the listeners to know kind of why he decided to go into academia and hear more about him. So, Kirk, can you... Um, Can you just tell us why did you decide to go into academia? Was it a direction you always wanted? Was it unexpected?
1: And kind of what do you focus on? Uh, Sure, Uh, great question. Um, I guess complete accident. I mean, whenever I first graduated from high school, the last thing in the world I wanted to be was an educator. That was just not gonna happen. Um, And it was just accidental. I was working as a customer service associate for a printing company which essentially was a technical writing position where you had to take engineering specs that printing engineers had generated and convert them into, if you will, everyday business speak to share with clients in the publishing industry. And to sort of augment the training I was getting on site there, I began to take classes in technical communication, which was a rather new field academically at the time. This would have been early 90s. Um, And just got a chance to really enjoy it, was given the opportunity to teach a class and I was hooked. Um, and from that point on, just have been really interested in the notion of how to teach individuals these different topics associated with technology and communication and how it affects the workplace. So that's where the interest comes from, for the most part. And your current
0: research, uh, what, are your, what are your focuses? What are you kind of um,
1: researching right now? Uh, sure. Right now, it's sort of twofold. Um, I'm working with a group of individuals in Ireland right now who are involved in public health. And one of the things they're trying to do are develop different kinds of infographic instructions that can be used to show new migrant populations to Ireland how to engage with the healthcare system there. And so uh, my background is originally in cultural anthropology and intercultural communication. And I've been able to draw on that over the course of my career to look at how cultures communicate and talk about things. But it's also helped me play a bit more with things like usability and design that I've become increasingly interested in to focus on those areas. So for this project, I'm working with public health educators in Ireland and a team of visual artists here in the United States to put together these different kinds of um, informational materials, visual-based information materials, with the goal that we're going to go do some user testing on them, ideally this fall, quite possibly this winter, uh, and look at kind of different facets of how cultural expectations related to visual communication and to healthcare affect the ability to share information cross-culturally. So that's one major project. Um, The other major one I'm working on right now here at Louisiana Tech is with the biomedical engineering. And a team of biomedical engineers is developing a new technology to sense the onset of epileptic seizures and ideally intervene and either mitigate or prevent them. And so I'm working on the communication aspect of things in terms of as these engineers design the technology, what should things like interfaces look like? So patients who are using the technology or physicians who are working with patients with this technology can effectively access what this machinery can do. So those are the two different projects I'm working on right now. Wow, it's, it's interesting to hear
0: like uh, technical communication in the context of the health industry Mm -hmm. and health practices like that. It's kind of, it's a different perspective than I'm used to. Um, but it's cool. Uh, now, in general, mm-hmm. um, you, you're well connected. You're very well connected to the tech comm academic scene. Approximately, how many tech comm academics are there out there, and kind of what journals do they publish in?
1: Um, you know, that's one of those funny questions where it depends upon who you ask in terms of numbers of individuals. Um, are you talking about individuals who have dedicated career, educational career paths in technical communication from undergraduate through PhD in tech comm? Are you talking about people who have degrees in different fields and publish in sort of the tech comm area? Or are you talking to folks who teach courses in it? So it kind of, I'm not trying to be evasive, but it's how you determine to identify what's a tech comm academic affects that. And it can be anywhere from a few hundred to maybe a few thousand, depending upon how you wish to perceive it. I think realistically, let's say it's a few thousand folks involved in education and research and tech comm is sort of the greater academic educational endeavor, all the way from community colleges up through PhD granting universities to folks with PhDs working in industry as well as academia. Let's peg it kind of there to keep it manageable. Um, What's interesting is these people will have very different backgrounds. But their common interest is researching how humans share information about science and technology. So that's kind of the underlying facet that binds them together. Um, You mentioned journals. People will differ on that. There are usually seven that tend to get mentioned in the field, some which are identified with certain organizations, others which are more independent. Sort of the major ones are um, the Society for Technical Communications Journal, Technical Communication, the IEEE Professional Communication Society's Transactions on Professional Communication, Um, the Journal of Technical Writing and Communication, which is independent. It's not affiliated with um, a specific organization. It's published by SAGE. There's the Journal of Business and Technical Communication, also independent, published by SAGE. Um, There's Programmatic Perspectives, which focuses on research and how technical communication education programs are constructed and curricular offered. That's by the Council for Programs in Technical and Scientific Communication. Um, There's Communication Design Quarterly, which is the peer-reviewed publication of the organization SIGDOC, the Special Interest Group for the Design of Communication out of ACM, the Association for Computing Machinery. And then there's Technical Communication Quarterly, published by the organization the Association of Technical Writing Teachers. Um, and that sort of expansive group of journals reflects different foci in the field. Certain individuals are more interested in this kind of research, um, engineering-based professional communication. They tend to publish more on the IEEE transactions on professional communication. Individuals more interested in, say, human factors and usability are more likely to publish in communication design quarterly. Folks who do more research on education and curriculum, more so in programmatic perspectives. So. Where people publish and where they look for research essentially is driven by the focus of a specific journal.
0: Okay, wow, you you really have a good grasp of just like the the scene, and you're you're right about all the different uh, uh, varieties of, of specialization and, and the difficulty mm-hmm. of sort of categorizing what is a tech com academic and what isn't. I hadn't even really thought mm-hmm. about that, um, but but you're right. Um, now. I want to focus on one article that you and your co author published in the November 2016 Techcom Journal. Uh-huh. Uh, this is called Reflections on Research uh-huh. Examining Practitioner Perspectives on the State of Research in Technical Communication. And it's really a long title um, for what yeah. I. <laughs> let me try to just simplify sort of the sure. topic uh, for just people listening, right? Um, You you explore this sort of rift between practitioners and and academics. And your argument is that research is this unifying focus. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what topics of research are um, in demand that practitioners want to know about? But let me read the first sort of paragraph, too, because it it does a great job um, of encapsulating uh, the the kind of, I don't know, the, the issue. You wrote... Today, technical communication appears to be a divided field, at least in terms of research. Practitioners think academic research does not apply to them, and academics think practitioners are not recognizing the importance of their research. From our position, both sides are right and both sides are wrong. Thus, the need arises to find a common ground between the two groups. After all, technical communication is one field. Some scholars have argued research when conducted well can bridge this divide as both sides should have equal stakes in the results." So tell me, why, why are you drawn to this topic? Um, are there other academics also concerned about this or are you kind of in a unique group of people who, who think this is a, a, a important issue?
1: Um, well, great questions. Um- I think a lot of us just as human beings are drawn to those things that change how society works and operates and you know human society is bound together by communication it's what allows us to work together as larger groups to perform major things um, and what facilitates that are the technologies we use to interact we're drawn to them to want to understand them to use them to interact through them just to see what they can do um, it's kind of like it's a biological imperative for humans we're We're a a social species, we need to interact. And so I think that just draws us together as people. In terms of the, the field of technical communication, I think most individuals, both academic researchers and industry practitioners, are interested in this facet, you know, what aspects of technology facilitate how we interact. You and I have talked, you know, at length before as individuals, you're very interested in what technology does, and I am too, and how it shapes the way that we communicate, and so I think that underlying facet bridges everybody who's involved in it. I think the greatest challenge comes in the approaches to it and how, whether you're coming out of industry or academia, what you focus on in relation to that overall topic of interest is kind of what begins to shift how well you can interact around it, if that makes sense. Um, you, know, you're, you work in industry, you work for Amazon. Whenever you do research quite often, it tends to focus on very specific answers to very specific questions. What do I need to do to accomplish this task at this time for this client base at this point? And so that that specific focus leads to a very specific kind of research that's done. In academia, it tends to be more towards focusing on more general trends. What causes individuals to use this kind of technology in certain situations versus others? The two can really help each other out. Um, The specific context you have and the more general framework I'm looking at really work well together. One can test the other, one can inform the other. It's a matter of figuring out how to sit down and talk about these issues to find areas of mutual interest and figure out how can we plan a project that allows both of us to explore that thing we're interested in around communication. Wow, that was a long-winded answer to a very direct question. No, no that's it's
0: it's great. Um you know I love just hearing your perspective and you're very articulate about about uh, this topic. Um now in your article you interviewed I don't know 30 plus practitioners mm-hmm. in a, in an open way to gather all kinds of information about the kind of research that they are looking for. Mm-hmm. Um and this body of research, this these questions that practitioners have could therefore inform a lot of projects that maybe academics undertake. Um, let me go over a few of these research topics that you said practitioners wanted information about. Sure. Um, one was how do titles like job titles mm-hmm. affect perceptions and expectations within the field and outside of it? This is huge. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know whether people refer to themselves as a content strategist or a tech writer or something else. Mm-hmm. Another another topic: um, the need for more research on specific audiences to understand the communication expectations of younger technology users. Mm-hmm. We often hear that you know uh, the the millennial, millennials just want video or other kinds of um, more social media. Uh, How to increase the credibility of our profession. Um, In many industries, we're still seen as clerks and minute-takers. What techniques effectively communicate for different audiences, looking at culture, age, gender, uh, different subject matters. Uh, The vital role of visual elements, multimedia, and so forth. So these, you know, I was reading through these, and I was like, wow, this is... This is a treasure of potential research projects that I would love to see. Um, And I thought that all the practitioners um, that you had interviewed seemed right on target with similar topics that I would be interested Mm -hmm. in as well. Um, Now, I'm curious. This was published in November 2016. Uh Uh, Have you kind of tracked to see if any academics sort of uh, took one of these ideas and ran with it in a research project?
1: Um, great question. Uh, yes, and, well, yes and no, sort of. Um, one of the things academics tend to track are what are called external citations. And that is, if you publish something, is another academic citing it or referencing it in the research they are doing on a topic? So it has gained a bit of traction and it has shown up to some extent in other publications out there. In terms of our folks sort of picking up this topic and trying to research it further, uh, to an extent, yes. I think part of it is these are – the idea behind the article was to come up with sort of these big, more open areas that different individuals could focus on in different ways. And I think now across the field, we're at the focusing stage. What smaller piece of this do I wish to sort of engage with and look at? Um, ideally, this will be the kind of thing where you and I can sit down and talk about what's something that's mutually beneficial to us as different members or different sides of this field. Um, I hate that different sides part. As alternative practitioners, the whole nomenclature thing, but this notion of we've got an area of common interest, what strengths do we have to bring to it? How can we mutually work together to accomplish something? Um, so, yes, it, there has been some beginning in looking at things, but I think more needs to be done. Um, to be frank with you, I think the biggest challenge is understanding how each other works, how folks in industry perceive of research, how they act upon it, what they need from it, and vice versa, how academics perceive of research, how they approach it, why they do it certain ways. Um, I think the better we can understand how we approach these things, the more effectively we can collaborate. Uh, I think if you ask lots of your colleagues or mine, there's interest in working together. But the challenge becomes how to do it because we tend to live in relatively isolated spheres and don't quite know what the other does. And for that reason, we don't quite know how to broach the topic of, hey, do you want to collaborate on this? So that's the big challenge, I think. Yeah,
0: it it is kind of odd how we're in different spheres, as you you put it. in looking at other sort of uh, uh, articles on this topic I stumbled across one that was written 20 years ago uh, by a former editor of the Techcom journal focusing on a lot of the same um, questions and he, he this editor was kind of surprised at why there was why there was uh, animosity between or animosity from practitioners towards academics you know why why these two groups um, couldn't harmonize more uh, more freely right. together or more, more easily um when you go to conferences mm-hmm. i know you've been to a lot of conferences this year mm-hmm. um and you tell people that you are an academic uh do you get any se- and the person's a practitioner you know right you say that you you teach at this and that you this or that university what's their reaction are they uh, intrigued? Uh, is there a sense of resentment or
1: distrust? Uh, great cre- great question. Personally, I think a lot of it is curiosity. Um, I mean, we, we all know enough about each other, and we've read enough across the field, I think, that we've got a rough understanding of where people stand on things. And so, I think it's more curiosity than anything else. I think the idea of animosity comes from one person trying to tell another how to do their job. And I think that's kind of the underpinning Facet that can drive some of the resentment and I don't think that actually comes from actual interaction as much as it does from indirect perception Um, You know if you don't know about another group of individuals You tend to come up with these mental frameworks for how you think they act and operate that tends to guide how you perceive things and Pretty soon you've got a completely misrepresented idea of how people operate with no interaction That guide how you then behave and I think that over time editors in the field, uh, researchers on both sides of the field, conferences that bring folks together, I think we've begun to interact more and have begun to understand each other better so that animosity is not there so much as it is curiosity. What are you working on now? How do you approach it? What could we do to work better together? I mean, You and I have had a number of conversations around this over time, and I think it reveals that factor. It's curiosity. What are you doing? What are you working on? and we've had these exchanges that can help us figure out how to work together on something so that that's been my takeaway from interactions at least in the past four or five years. What have your experiences been
0: uh well i i um I guess i I have had curiosity towards academics when i mm-hmm. when I run into them at conferences. I'm thinking of the last STC conference because that's at that conference, it seems like more academics um, uh, participate there mm-hmm. in that conference than others. And yeah, I it's kind of like the academics are this this group of people that are doing important research for a, my profession, our same profession. Um, but I don't really know what they're doing, right. or I'm not <laughs> right. I'm not really sure. And so, yeah, there is a, a curiosity. Uh, on the flip side, there there are people who do have more of a um, uh, more of a sense of animosity. We did this. We're going to talk more about this mm-hmm. survey a little bit coming right. up. But in some of the initial open ended responses, some people were very kind of heated. I had one person who t- who told me um, I was trying to get the person to write sort of uh, his ex- or, or his or her. I won't reveal a right. gender. Right this. <laughs> This person's experience in an academic program, mm-hmm. and the person was like, "Well, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to burn bridges. I don't want to, you know, make right. enemies." And I'm like, "Oh, you know." Right. Uh, so there's two sides of it, but I want to focus before we jump more into the survey and, and reasons why there's this sort of divide, oh. which uh, it, at least is partly just due to lack of communication between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, why do practitioners need academics? Um, and and then I want to explore why academics need practitioners. Um, I had a recent email from a friend who said she told me that we're thought of often, and by we I mean practitioners, mm-hmm. are thought of as technicians mm-hmm. by the outside world. Uh, I've had many people... Be completely surprised to find that there's such a thing as like a, a program where technical writers mm-hmm. can like get a degree in technical writing mm-hmm. or technical communication or, or I tell them that yeah there's a, a society for technical communication it con- consists of technical writers and they're kind of blown away mm-hmm. which su- suggests that people think of technical writers as a vocational skill right. kind of like you learn it on the job right and we're this little technician, not really grounded in larger theoretical um, informing—I don't know—frameworks that mm-hmm. maybe a uh, somebody with a learning PhD might have. All right. um, wh- why do you think? What What's your take on why you think practitioners need academics? I mean, in some ways, that many practitioners operate with zero sort Mm -hmm. of interaction from academics and aren't they getting along just fine? Sure.
1: Um, Let's backtrack it a bit right quick if we could. First of all, the concept of technician. That's not necessarily a negative term. I mean, a physician, the person you go to for your basic health care, that person's a technician. They're applying a very specific body of knowledge according to certain practices they have learned to apply that knowledge to achieve a certain objective and it's one that's beneficial and desirable. So I think the challenge is not so much you're a technician or not, it's understanding the value of that which you are applying to achieve an objective. Um, you know, no one would say to a neurosurgeon, well, you really don't have anything to offer value. You're not much more than a secretary or, you know, you're not really much more than a cleanup person. That's, that's just wrong. And the reason because of that is there's a certain sort of allure with how we define what that person does as a technician, how they apply that knowledge to achieve a specific objective. The same can be said of technical communication. I mean, people have amazing amounts of knowledge about how human beings think and interact with technology that guides how they do everything from developing an online help system to maybe even develop an icon. So that's an amazing amount of knowledge that goes into achieving that objective. But a lot of it is done behind the scenes. And so since people don't see it happening, they don't quite understand what is going on and what that means to truly value what the individual does. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of the thing you hear about how technical communication does not work more often than it does. People talking about this system didn't work well, or this help didn't work well, or the manual didn't provide effective instruction versus this was amazing, and it really helped us use this product well. So, a lot of it is getting the word out in terms of what folks do. Um, In terms of how individuals can work together across academia practitioner lines, I think that's where things get important, how each side contributes to the other. Um, Technicians apply a general body of knowledge to specific situations to achieve an objective. Where does that general knowledge come from? Somebody is usually out there testing ideas, checking concepts, coming up with new frameworks or ideas for doing things that guide how we use a technology, how we communicate, how we behave. The folks who often are kind of engaged in that more general research tend to be academics, or that tends to be the focus of academic research, if you will, looking at general topics, trends, themes, concepts that sort of underlie how we behave, how we communicate. For practitioners, it's much more, how do we take this general concept and apply it to a very specific situation to achieve a very particular objective? Um, It's one thing to say I understand color theory and how to pair colors in order to create sort of a pleasing design that aesthetically draws individuals to something. It's another to say I've got to design a logo that's going to quickly identify the online help system on my interface. How do I do that? They're essentially the same thing being scoped at different levels, if you will. And so what each side brings is that part of the equation, the more general to the more specific and the more focused. Each needs the other. Um, Folks in academic research try to come up with these general ideas and ideally present them to folks in industry to test, to play with, to see can they be refined or or improved based upon pragmatic application. And folks in industry, again, the idea is looking at this theoretical concepts. How do we apply them to see do they work? Can they make things easier than, think, than how stuff has been done in the past? But the catch is everybody's got to communicate in that model so that you get the kind of feedback in place that academics can fine tune the more generalized research that they do. And practitioners can attune the more specific applications they engage in based upon these kinds of concepts. Uh, Essentially, it's physics and engineering need each other. Engineers apply concepts from physics to achieve objectives. And physicists look to engineers to test concepts and ideas and to see, does something need to be refined because it's been applied in the real world or applied and doesn't seem to be working as intended? Um, So that's kind of the approach I take to it. They're all interconnected. But the key is they've got to be interacting to get this kind of feedback that makes it meaningful.
0: Hmm. I, I like the analogy to uh, physicists and engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's an interesting way way of looking at it. And, and I was just thinking as you're describing uh, the body of knowledge, this general realm of ideas and principles and strategies and so forth, um, do you think that practitioners uh, don't realize that much of that body of knowledge uh, originates out of academic research or is that a false false assumption does it not originate out of academic research does a lot of our I mean just Mm -hmm. take something like topic based Mm off or chunking chunking large material into smaller books would would you say this this uh, These are principles developed through uh, academic research and, you know, populated into the body of knowledge that eventually trickles down mm-hmm. to the practitioners or is this something that practitioners uh, have just sort of known as part of the trade mm-hmm. and it's, it's not necessarily originating from
1: academics? Uh, great question. Well, let's take a look at, you know, chunking as a, a general concept. I mean, basically, you're talking about cognitive psychological principles, the notion of information theory that humans encounter too much information at once. And to make it manageable, to process it, we automatically begin to subdivide and organize it into units, specific units that we recognize because the culture we've grown up in has told us, pull this information together in this way to say this is what something is. Um, Why is something a table setting and not 12 different pieces of cutlery or you know crockery put together on a table because our culture says, organize these variables in this way. It's one unit. You see it as one. You remember it as one. So that's kind of chunking from the cognitive science side of it. Now, over time, these ideas, that's, it comes out of cognitive psychology, but these ideas that start sort of at the more abstract level in academia or academic research tend to get talked about more across academic fields or within greater society and then begin to influence things. Um, Marketers are great adopters of cognitive psychological practices to develop things to meet audience needs. Uh, Technical communicators interact with marketers within the the realm of the, the workplace and need to interact with them. They also have their own understanding about humans and how humans behave based upon, let's say, the coursework that they have taken, which is based upon textbooks that are founded on academic research that came before it, or they've read something perhaps that Uh, The the work of Donald Norman, which looks at sort of usability and design that draws very heavily on cognitive science, uh, but that sort of packages it for a more everyday audience versus high academic register or style. I mean, ideas that originate in academia become more pervasive through different venues and different channels. At the same time, academics are attuned by everything from reading the daily newspaper to watching the news on TV to interacting with their neighbors to figure out how society operates. So these, these aspects aren't free floating out there and nobody has control over them. But they, they get out in different ways and fashions and forms that begin to permeate in such a way that they seem to become common knowledge. Um, and I think that's the interesting part is this common knowledge that we all draw from comes from somewhere. Someone came up with a concept, someone tried it, someone shared it, and eventually it was successful enough that others began to say, let's try this or let's try this. So I think that's the, the interesting factor and kind of the grand challenge is trying to trace how this stuff moves to figure out, back to your example of chunking, it, it comes out of somewhere. It's become very commonplace because it's been repeatedly used because it's been tested and seems to work in different venues in different formats. But because a lot of that testing and reworking and thinking and communicating has been very informal over time and through indirect channels as well as direct ones, we tend to lose track of, no, this came from someplace originally. It wasn't sort of built into our species. Or hmm. the idea of it, excuse me. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's an interesting question, just where, where these ideas come mm-hmm. from. And I'm, you know, it's, I'm sure it's, uh, it, there's no like spring that you find in one place right. and then everything else right. you know, inherits it. Right. It's, it's much more fluid, but, uh, uh I want to f- kind of flip the question now. Sure. We've been talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the need that practitioners have of, of this not body of knowledge mm-hmm. to engineer things. Um, but now academics, why do they need practitioners? Um,
1: what are your thoughts on, on that? Uh, well, sure. Uh, I mean, all academic research essentially generates sort of theoretical concepts, let's say. And, you know, one of the complaints you often hear about academic research is it's too theoretical. But if you've got a theoretical concept, you've got to test it to see does the theory actually – is it valid? Is it worthwhile? Is it something that needs to be modified to correctly reflect what's going on? And that's where, I mean, it's got to be applied in society because we study how societies communicate. And that's the really important opportunity to interact with practitioners, testing ideas in different kinds of contexts to see, do they really work? Do they need to be modified? What kind of feedback are we getting from it? And so in many ways, that's kind of a holy grail, being able to test this idea in the actual context of of the world and see, does it work or does it need to be modified? Um, so th- there, there's that need there. Uh, you, you can build a theory, but you've got to test it to, to change it and update it and refine it to make it more workable. And you need that kind of direct application to do so. So we're kind of back to physics and engineering again, if you will. You know, uh, It's one thing for me to say, mathematically, this should be possible. We should be able to construct this kind of building or bridge. It's another thing for the engineer to come back and say, no, we can't, and here is why. And it could be a variable that had not been accounted for before. Yes, mathematically, it may be possible to do this, but we haven't developed the materials yet to achieve that mathematical ideal. Oh, so let's rethink this. I think it's the same thing in terms of technical communication. We could achieve really effective communication and usability and design if we do this yeah, but we aren't to the stage yet where humans are communicating this directly via electronic media 24-7, so that's not going to work. Um, Google Glass is a good example of that. This notion of you know wearable computing technologies, theoretically, these are the kinds of things which we should be able to do with them. Pragmatically, there were some snags, and it affected the adoption of this technology, and that's important. It's understanding, well, the ideal versus the real, both need to be balanced. And it's it's a constant evolutionary process driven by feedback and testing you develop a concept you test it you refine it based upon results you test again and that's how you move forward I mean, th- that's research right develop concept test idea find results refine based on try again until you get to the answer you do it as a part of your job i do it as a part of mine so presumably mm-hmm. um you know if academics
0: want to Kind of test their ideas, uh-huh. test these principles, knowledge, uh, concepts in the real world and practitioners' world, and and see what uh, how they work out. Get data from practitioners. Mm-hmm. Uh, one would think that that academics would kind of write for practitioners or yeah. in some way speak more directly yeah. yep. with practitioners, mm-hmm. but instead. It seems like academics kind of just write for other academics yeah. and keep all their publications behind paywalls that practitioners can't access, yeah. and hence this kind of leads to this divide, mm-hmm. this lack of communication. So you know, if, if the two sides need each other, what mm-hmm. why are there why is there this huge divide with the journals and the audiences uh, for
1: for these articles? Excellent observations and excellent questions. Um, the the whole the whole phenomenon of you you hit the nail right on the head. We tend to talk past each other. We use very different vocabularies when we talk about the same things, and that can cause us to really speak around each other, talk past each other, and a lot of the problem comes in there. So why does it happen? A lot. Uh, I mean, for me, the problem has to do with the fact of how academics are assessed and evaluated for their job performance. So as an academic, my research work is reviewed and assessed by other academics in academia who hold academic positions and are taught this is how you talk about research, this is what research is, this is what you look for when you assess things. Now, because of that, you sort of create this closed loop or self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will, that if I only speak to use the language analogy, if I only speak English to other English speakers, it's my thought that English is the only language that is because there's no one else out there to say, why don't you try this? Or there are other languages that exist or do this differently. The same is the case in academia. Because practitioners aren't a part of the academic evaluation process, there's very little ability to get that external input. And that, that internal evaluation in academia occurs at multiple levels so it's academic sort of spheres but within spheres but within spheres all within academia that reinforce the notion of this is how we talk about research this is how we do it this is how we present it and so the key is sort of shifting the nature of academia to allow more non-academics to have some sort of input into this process the, the the holy grail or the, the great pinnacle that most academics seek is something called tenure, which is essentially secure long-term contract, if you will. And that tenure is based for the large part upon this. It's a cumulative assessment, generally at the sixth year of someone's academic career or their sixth year of employment to see as researchers, how did they do? How do other people at the university think they're doing as researchers? How do other academics in the field think they're doing? It would be nice if maybe that input could also include the option would you like to have ind- individuals in industry comment on the contributions your research has made or could make based upon what you've written about and i think that's where we can begin to expand this this role of no you need to start talking to other audiences and speaking to other audiences um personally yeah, i think I- it's a new- oh sorry go ahead Oh, no, no, keep keep finishing your thought. Well, it's an imperative because we hear now about the need for academics to be able to convey to mainstream society what they do. And I think it's something that that pressure could be the incentive to begin opening this, say, formally closed black box of how academia operates when it comes to research, to get more input from broader segments of society, to kind of prompt academics to want to share what they do with the different groups outside of academia and learn how to communicate with those groups, how to work with those groups on research projects. I think that would be the key to kind of changing this dynamic, if you would. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by, the, by
0: this idea of measuring influence, mm-hmm. right? A, if an academic is going to receive tenure mm-hmm. and they go through this process where they, they're evaluated mm-hmm. to see if... Their research has made an impact on you know the the, the, the discipline mm-hmm. and how practitioners go about it. Mm-hmm. I think I agree with you that that could be a huge pressure point to make sure that academics stay on focus mm-hmm. um, in terms of like uh, I should, I hate to say stay on focus, no, but cool. hope uh, so that so that uh, their their focus kind of aligns with practitioner needs. I mm-hmm. guess maybe I'm coming at this a little bit selfishly, right? Because I, I want all of, like, all the research that ac- academics do to relate exactly mm-hmm. to what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and I when it doesn't, I'm like, oh, I throw up my arms and say, well, that person doesn't understand the workplace, right. or they, you know, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, if I had some kind of input to say, yeah, this article, this really helped me, or mm-hmm. no, this is, like, completely, uh, you know, Irrelevant to me. I think that right. would be that would be huge. I know that I know that there are a lot of practitioners on the board, mm-hmm. the advisory board of the TechCom Journal. Right. You're on the advisory board, yep. right? Yes. Um, how many other practitioners are are on there? I'm on a ballpark. I think it's like five. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, out of out of like ten, right? I believe not, so. Yeah. Not, yeah. So that's. I mean, one would think that they could help mm-hmm. uh, serve as the gatekeepers right. to know what. Is relevant what right. gets in, what gets out. Right. Um, I was, I was trying to read through the latest TechCom Journal, sort of uh, almost right. in, in preparation for this. And um, one of the articles I was reading through it, and and uh, it, well, it was kind of fascinating. Oh, sorry, go ahead. You've got a, a
1: thought there. Well, just to run with an example that you brought up, um, we've talked about how to merge industry and academic input into things to kind of come up with a more cohesive and comprehensive approach. I think technical communication and the IEEE transactions on professional communication have done a really good job of whenever an article is submitted that needs to be reviewed to determine is it worthy of publication or not, the editors have really tried to make a concerted effort to say we'll have both an academic and a practitioner review this piece so that the kind of input the individual gets comes from both sides of the field and i think that's a key way that we can begin looking at how to make research more accessible and work together more effectively input at these kinds of stages so it's it's a good model to sort of consider how do we get involved with these practices i'm sorry go ahead you yeah. were saying
0: no no i, I didn't realize that, that that they had two different reviewers like that mm-hmm. that sounds like a good strategy um, no i think just more i would love to see more of the academic editors mm-hmm. Uh, reach out to practitioners to find out what mm-hmm. practitioners uh, thought of of certain articles that yeah. were published. I I kind of feel like that, that's missing. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think practitioners tend to sort of dismiss academics in part because they don't uh, do this sort of follow-up on the audience they're trying to reach. Um, right. But uh, anyway, I, I don't want to go down too far there because mm-hmm. I think... Um, despite the fact that, you know the articles are written in a in a very uh, academic discourse and they have a very uh, scientific methodology to them, practitioners can can read this stuff and and glean things mm-hmm. that are interesting from them. Mm-hmm. Um, i I only wish that they they would just be more accessible. you know right. the the STC makes the techcom journal accessible, and that is a huge, mm-hmm. you know uh, huge step. It's certainly. Um, not too expensive mm-hmm. but but a lot of the other journals you mentioned mm-hmm. um, it's hard to get access to them right. w- w- unless you have one of these sort of university uh, subscription mm-hmm. type uh, things um, and, and what I'd really want I mean this would be, I, I can't believe there's not more of this but I want one, one searchable database. I guess yeah. Ingenta sort of allows this right? Mm-hmm. You can search things and it looks across all of its articles yep. but um, that has some limitations there. So wh- when you do uh, research, when you want to find things out, mm-hmm. do you have a kind of how do you go about searching across all the academic journals to see what's been written about
1: it? Do you? Um, great question. I mean, there are number to back up a second, you mentioned a really important point, this whole access phenomenon and how paywalls and you know subscription fees really affect who can access research. And I think this is a primary where academics and industry folks need to start working together more to expand access. Are there things we can do through our universities as academics that allow practitioners more access to the databases we have to be able to access this research? Can we come up with um, an affiliate status? Uh, And you and I have talked a bit about this, you know, can my university come with an affiliate status for you as an industry practitioner so that you would be able to access our library databases and these kinds of materials in exchange for serving the university community in some way? Let's say maybe you teach a guest lecture so many times a year for my department in exchange for that, we find some way of giving you access to our our library databases. So we need to start exploring those kinds of relationships also. How to work together so that you can help me with my job as an educator in the field to train who will be your coworkers. And I can use the access I have to these kinds of databases to let you search through and sift through the mess as needed. So th- that's something I think we need to explore as a field. In response to your question about organizing research, I mean, there are a couple of different strategies I think you'll see lots of academics use. The first is many will go with different kinds of you know databases that their their libraries or their organizations have that are fairly well organized and searchable to find articles Um, so that's kind of one metric that's used another thing that's very common is academics will use different kinds of software citation softwares which keep track of or they're they're databasing systems that keep track of what you've read so i've read an article i've read one of your blog posts it allows me to create an entry for it in a database i keep that's designed by this software something like endnote and that lets me know this is where it was published. This is what it's about. Here are some key terms to to market for searching later. And I begin to keep my own independent database based upon my specific research interest and based on my readings over time. So I've got my library's database that I can search to a certain extent. I've got the customizable database I myself have developed using this kind of citation technology that I've purchased or that I've gotten free for access download. And then you know I've. Excuse me, just kind of working with other colleagues to ask questions. I think social media is becoming a very powerful research tool. Academics popping out there and saying, has anybody seen any research on X? Posting it to Facebook, posting it to Twitter, posting it to other sorts of, you know, even uh, email listservs. Um, And just trying to get information those ways. So nobody has complete access to all information. But it's a matter of knowing the kinds of tools available To sort of plumb different things Hmm. um i think the key to that that's beneficial to academics and detrimental is we tend to become specialists in extremely focused areas within a discipline so you know there's somewhere out there there's someone who's an expert on all left-handed irish poetry written between 1600 and 1601 you know that that could tell you give me everything that's been written on this they could probably you know present it to you off the top of their head So that kind of specialized knowledge where people just seem to know certain things because they've studied it so much, it's a great benefit because I know who to turn to to get very particular information on very specific things. But also it's a detriment because, well, it limits who I can collaborate with and what I can do because that knowledge is so focused, if that makes sense. Uh, Yeah. And that's the challenge for academia working with industry. It's breaking this extremely focused specialization to more general sort of field-wise or general topic comprehension where you don't know everything, but you know where to go to find the answers in this domain area. I think that's the key to evolving academics, to work with greater society, and to work with folks in industry to engage in more meaningful research.
0: Yeah, I I was uh, on Slack the other day mm-hmm. on the Write the Docs channel, and somebody was talking about... Like layouts, mm-hmm. and they said, two-column layouts versus three-column layouts. Has have there been any studies done on nice. which is better? You know, mm-hmm. any academic studies on this so that we can make a decision. Yeah. And, and I know that layouts tend to come up a lot right. in in terms of like people want want to corroborate their mm-hmm. their preferences or they want to find out what's better for users, right? right? Like how many bullets should I use and what should the document design really be uh-huh. um, where can we turn to for academics to get right. you know this information and I think if we had some kind of better, way for the two sides the practitioners mm-hmm. to communicate and say you know hey has there been any research on this and an academic could go through and scour some kind of databases and say uh, yeah check out that article you know which may be in an entirely different mm-hmm. discipline a usability mm-hmm. discipline, web development right. who knows right um that kind of information sharing would be huge um but i i, I kind of feel like the Online just the 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 places where academics hang out online and mm-hmm. the places where practitioners hang out online aren't necessarily the same sort of mm-hmm. uh, watering pond right right so hopefully hopefully we we can move more towards some kind of interactive communication I like I like all this effort and the the focus and attention that you've got on building these bridges I think it can only be positive we're we're at a time right now where we have these emerging groups mm-hmm. like Write the Docs, right. emerging with all kinds of momentum. People joining, organizing meetups, uh, inviting presenters. Lots of people getting together to share best practices, tips in an open way. A lot of them are recorded, mm-hmm. and I think this is this is great. Now let's bring the body of knowledge, the academic research, into this the same momentum the conversation mm-hmm. the presentations because we don't want to have an entirely new group of techcom people start over right, right? they and, and and they won't because you've got this body of knowledge whether people realize where it comes from or not um, but uh, I would love to see more of an integration point where you have practitioners building on academics and academics building on uh, you know feedback and data from practitioners mm-hmm. Um all right. Well, what other top? Are there any other topics we've been chatting for a while, and we should probably come to a close? But any other topics you want to cover about academic practitioner um, divides and so forth?
1: I think two things that are really important to collaboration, and I think th- the first is, I mean, academics exist for the most part in educational programs that you know industry draws its employees from. I think it's really important that the st- the first step in fostering relationships are using education as a conduit. There is some sort of educational institution in the, the city where you live at the moment. Do they have a technical communication program? It could reach out to them and say, you know, here at my place of employment, we've got these different topics that we really are interested in doing research on. Is there anyone at your university or in your department who might be interested in picking this up and working with this? Can we collaborate around it somehow? And vice versa. It's academics and universities saying, you know, these are businesses in the area that is it worth trying to meet with someone in the tech comm division there to say, well, we really want to do research that focuses on some of the things you're interested in. What are you doing? What are the major areas of interest for you right now? But I think if we explore these kinds of local communications or these kinds of local communities and look about what's of interest to both of us. How can we come up with a a long-term plan over the next year, next two years, next three years, that allows us to investigate this topic together, we can start to foster relationships that are meaningful to everybody. Most importantly, it lets us talk about research from our specific perspectives. So you can say, well, can you do this? And I can explain, well, no, we can't. Here's why. Can you do a quick survey of a thousand people and see what happens. Uh, well, no, because I've got to run it through a special internal review board, which has to approve anything that deals with gathering information directly from human subjects. That will take time and delay. Suddenly, we've created a new level of understanding about the kinds of research that can be conducted and how to do it. I know that you're very interested in large-scale you know, human-based data collection, and you realize that I'm limited in how I can do that based upon... The, the different policy parameters that are in effect at my university. So it's that kind of knowledge that can begin to think about, well, what's a manageable kind of project then that gets at what you need and what I can do? And that's, I think, the key to working together is building these understandings, talking to each other, getting past the curiosity towards the collaboration, if you will, that makes it important. The other thing, uh, and this was uh, kind of hit me at a conference recently, where um, I was at an event, which was half practitioner and half academic and the topic of blogs came up and every person in that room again it's a split academic industry practitioner audience referenced two blogs one was by an academic and one was by an industry practitioner and they all were aware of the two blogs which kind of surprised me Uh, but it helped to realize that you know blogs are a very powerful mechanism to share ideas across the greater field they're accessible, they focus on things we're passionate about and are of interest to, they allow for communication interaction, they're relatively easily searchable depending upon, you know, what kind of search engine you're using, but you get the point. But the idea of, can we do more to just start sharing as part of our everyday activities? As a researcher, should I start blogging about what I'm doing, and should that be something that I can count towards my metrics for being assessed as an academic, As an industry practitioner, the blog that you keep, is it something that your employer values and that they see as a good tool to share information with the greater public as well as look for opportunities to collaborate? Can we build this culture of, you know, fostering information, sharing in through these venues that already seem to be working and that people are interested in? I think that's the big thing. How do we get beyond the curiosity to the communication and then the collaboration?
0: Yeah, well, I definitely have goals to do a lot of kind of uh, guest posts mm-hmm. from industry practitioners awesome. uh, on my blog, and and um, I just want to start reading academic articles more. Right. You know, I I like to go in more depth, and mm-hmm. and I think um, any kind of sharing across all these blogs and other websites can can definitely move this from discussion to action. So cool. thanks. Kirk so much. You've, you're uh, a treasure of insights. You just have a lot of knowledge, and
1: uh, it's great talking with Thanks. you about this. Um, Thanks for the opportunity uh, to chat with you about this. Um, these are the kind of conversations we need to be having in the field, so thank you for the opportunity to have it.
0: Yeah, and if people want to learn more about you, uh, is there any website you want to point
1: them to, or any um, resource you want to recommend? I would say, I mean, feel free to, feel free to email me directly. My personal email is kirk, K-I-R-K, St. Amant at gmail.com. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, and for folks who are more attuned with academic sort of repositories, I'm on academia.edu as well as ResearchGate. Um, so hopefully, you know, I've tried to post my own research there so folks can look at it. Um, I just want to continue these conversations, and I hope that we can. So thank you for the chance to begin talking about these things, and I hope we can continue. All right. Well, thanks, Kirk.
0: Thanks, Tom. You have a great afternoon.